0: Welcome to the Innovation Engine podcast. Since 2014, we've been bringing you conversations with some of the world's leading authorities on innovation. Topics we cover include technology, culture, leadership, and more. Coming to you from Three Pillar Global Studio in Fairfax, Virginia, here's your host, Will Sherlin. Welcome back to the Innovation Engine podcast. On this episode, we'll be talking with Dr. Max McEwen. About the power of now, why we seem to make decisions that make our lives harder, how to become more like professional boxers in our daily lives, and why you should constantly move through your to do lists to become less stressed. Here with us today to talk about all that more is Dr. Max McEwen. Dr. McEwen is the best selling author of The Strategy Book, The Innovation Book, And most recently, Now! The surprising truth about the power of now. Dr. McEwen is an expert in strategy, leadership, innovation, and how to create a better future. He works with some of the world's most successful global brands, helping leaders across sectors develop innovative cultures, products, and services. You can find out more about Max and read his latest writings on his website at www.maxmckeon.com. Welcome back to the podcast, Dr. McEwen.
1: It's good to be here, Will. good to be back, in fact, with you.
0: Absolutely. We're thrilled that you could join us again to talk about the new book called Now. So let's start with the cover of the book. You specifically use the hashtag symbol in your title and your cover art. And throughout the book, when you talk about Now, you talk about hashtag Now. So what's the difference between the regular now and hashtag now?
1: That's a great question, Will. So so on the cover and throughout the book, there's this symbol. It's a little like a Venn diagram, and you have a circle for the past and a circle for the future. And then on that intersection, right in the center of that, you have this little hashtag to represent now. And I, I think the difference here is recognizing its power that this three seconds these moments can be seized and can be used and they construct our whole lives so i think the difference between just now in general and hashtag now is the recognition of the power that you have and the choices that you have
0: And you start the book off with two studies, one done by Scott J. Dickman on impulsivity and the other by Ari Kroglonsky on the differences between the two types of guiding behavior. Both studies concluded that sometimes we actively choose to make our lives more difficult. So what are the forces at play that make that happen?
1: Well, Dickman was a fascinating guy, Scott Dickman. Sadly, he passed away quite uh, young. But he did some work on what we generally term impulsivity, you know, the the way that people just jump into a decision without too much thought. And what he was really surprised at was when he found that there were some people who didn't appear to put much thought into their decisions, but still made decisions that were at least as good as everybody else's. So they didn't really sacrifice accuracy or success for their speed of decision. In fact, they got more benefit from making their decision faster. So I think that that's part of it, that with decisions, and in the book, we talk a lot about effortless decisions. People can put a lot of effort into trying to find the perfect, perfect, safe, safe decision but that's wasted time. It's wasted time because it doesn't improve your decision and it's wasted time because you don't get to discover the benefits of your decision or even the disadvantages. So we talk lots in the book about this, the difference between dysfunctional impulsivity and functional impulsivity. So on the decision side, that's definitely one. And on the other side, the Kreglansky stuff quickly is that he found that there are people who not only make faster decisions, but want to just keep moving, who love moving, who love doing, who want change. And they have this huge benefit because they experience and enjoy effortless action. They don't think about it too much and they just get on. They can't wait to sort of tear into a new project, a new day to move on to the next thing. And that effortless action and effortless decisions that's about making life no harder than it needs to be no more wrong pain for wrong game but the kind of investment in the right things you, you can enjoy life move faster make smarter decisions
0: and you coined the term nowist to refer to those who live their lives in this focused action state of mind what are some ways one can become a nowist as opposed to a thenist and keep that mindset as they move forward?
1: Well, a really important thing in here is that we've all got, at a neurological level, in our brain, our brains made up of, of course, you know, neurons and synapses, but also networks, networks, neural networks, and among those networks are the network that we have that's continually looking, it's continually on, even when we're sleeping, continually looking for options and alternatives. It looks back, it looks forward, it looks at options. And that's our then network. And also we have a, a now network. And what that's looking to do is just get doing. So the nowest, we all have within us uh, a now network, a then network. And sometimes we're very good at both. We're very good at doing, and we're very good at hypothesizing. The nowist is someone who tips towards action. They can see options, but they also tip towards action. A thenist is somebody who tips rather too much towards the what ifs and the hypothesis. They become kind of chicken licking. They worry that the world's going to fall on their head all the time and that stops them enjoying and it stops them doing and it makes them ask sort of impossible questions. So so how to do it in part, remember that you've got both and when you feel that the questioning and the worrying is getting out of control and that it's wasteful, that your perfectionism is getting in the way and it's wasteful, tip yourself back towards action.
0: Yeah, and you talk some in the book about the nowist mindset, which is one to alleviate stress. Stress can often come from having too many things to do or too many decisions to make. But you think there's actually joy to be found in becoming more of a nowist, doing things, and then having the ability to do more things. So what's the distinction and how does it make to-do lists seem less overwhelming?
1: Well, some people that you may have seen it—the the zero email cult, for instance—it seems to look at activities as, some, as something to be finished always. I'm only happy when I've finished this activity, or I'm only happy when I've got the reward from having done this activity. So instead of, if you're in sales, instead of enjoying the selling and the talking to people and the traveling and the learning, you're only interested in the result at the end of the day. And the problem with that is it sucks the energy out of your experience, so you do less well, typically. And also it sucks the joy out of the activity, so you don't enjoy your life as much as you could. So now it's get pleasure out of the doing of the thing. And if they don't find that enjoyment naturally, it's uh, like when my my mother used to tell me that I should pretend to be a secret agent as I was cleaning the garden or mowing the lawn. (laughs) If you don't get natural energy, then at least find some in there so that the doing of the thing becomes part of uh, the joy of life.
0: Okay, so you mentioned inbox zero in that answer, and because I'm always just curious to know how different people manage their emails, how many emails are in your inbox right now?
1: Well, the answer is I have, I think, about 7,000 emails in my inbox. Okay. I guess I could look for the precise number. Now, most of them are read. Sure. But I do that via a kind of nowist approach of answering the emails as they come in quickly rather than waiting for the perfect time or the perfect answer and you find that if you do that and you get in with the sort of flow and energy of life you don't have an inbox full you just enjoy the process and enjoy sort of moving things on i treat each email as a kind of seed somebody's thrown over and it's my job to nurture it and pass it back
0: and I can personally vouch for that because you responded very quickly to an email of mine about the questions for this podcast while you were on vacation, no less.
1: Well, I used to find well that, that I was quite different. I'd receive the email and either view it as a, a task I didn't want to do. You know, you start to so they start to stack on top of your shoulders. It's this pressure, um, the the job to be done in the future, or I was worth waiting for the perfect answer, or even occasionally. Uh, waiting to, to seem more important, you know, busier than you are. Sure. And I, I find that people really just appreciate you getting on the phone immediately or getting back to them on an email immediately makes their life easier. And that's better for you and for them.
0: Yeah, definitely. Well, as a person who has, gosh, I, I don't know how many thousands of emails in my inbox, but one who will never get to inbox zero, I can appreciate that uh, approach to life. Um, although maybe it's not the most productive for my workday to have email open at all times. But that's another story. Let me get back to the question and the book at hand, Max. Um, One of the main tenets that you write about of Nowus is their ability to, quote, look while leaping, or basically the ability to assess a decision while while the decision is being made. How do you find this is different than impulsivity, which has kind of a negative connotation?
1: Well, the dysfunctional impulsivity is something that happens when somebody blurts out a decision or an action because of the pressure and because they don't want to think about it. So the, the young driver, for instance, who is more likely to be dysfunctionally impulsive because they get into some kind of crazy situation on the free, freeway, it feels crazy, cars coming at you, all these options, and they just slam on the brakes or go to the left or to, to the right, a little bit like the scene in Clueless. But the nowist, it, it comes partly through experience. They're looking for patterns as they move, look while leaping, leap while looking. And they're much more like uh, the experienced rock climbers that were studied as part of the book. And what they did, we've it, it was found, was when they're looking up at the rock face and they're preparing, they can see the easy parts of their climb And then they can see the knotty, difficult bits of the climb. And when they start moving up, they move very fast up the rock face and then they slow down at the part that requires more thought and more attention, then they speed up after the the difficult part of the wall. Inexperienced rock climbers, they try to go fast all the way up. And when they come to the challenge, because they haven't looked ahead, While they climb, they're tired and they try it too fast and they fail and they fall back and they end up hanging on their rope in a sort of embarrassed silence as their hands get more and more tired. And the nowist very much is trying to do both. And you find they put their effort into looking at the right parts of their problem.
0: And yes, sticking with the right parts of the problem Goals is something that many people have to do and work, many people do in their daily lives. You write about resisting energy-sucking anti-goals. What are some ways to recognize what anti-goals may be and to avoid wasting time on them?
1: An anti-goal is something that you're trying to avoid. Let's do a family example. You want a really good relationship with your partner and you're very much in love with uh, him or her, but you don't really like to visit their family, and your anti-goal becomes avoiding their family because you don't like small talk with people who are relative strangers, and you spend all your effort with this anti-goal, this thing you want to avoid, rather than realizing that it's wrapped up in the bigger goal, that learning to get on with their family And learning to become more than strangers is how you will achieve part of your goal, which is to have a loving, enduring relationship with your partner. So the anti-goal avoidance gets in the way of the goal achievement. And this is the case with many, many parts of life. And if we can recognize that, we can flip it back and realize that this is just part of achieving a thing we want. And so we can start to enjoy it.
0: Yeah, and you talked a little bit about the flow of life earlier. One of the main stressors in that flow can be the unpredictable that interrupts our you know daily movements. So nowists can avoid this by becoming more like boxers. They visualize hits before they come and assess how they will either absorb them or step out of the way. How do nowists change their mindset to find themselves in better places when these unant- unanticipated interruptions arise?
1: Well, you're going to get hit. Uh, As you've pointed out in life, something's going to happen. You're born, you will die. And along the way, unfortunately, awful things will happen at some point. And even when awful things are not happening, perhaps disappointing things happen. You'll get knocked back. Well, the research shows that the the best of the, the boxers and the martial artists accept that they will be hit at some point. And so they do a few things about that. One, they, they protect themselves to some extent while moving forward. Secondly, they roll away from the punch or, or the kick and so minimize its impact. And third, they think in terms of the overall goal of moving forward so that when they are hit, they don't think so much about the, the pain and the difficulty. They think this, again, is part of the flow of life, so they're ready with the counterattack. So protecting themselves, rolling with the punches, and then viewing it as part of an overall counterattack. And that's definitely something we can do in life.
0: And most people tend to be have a little bit more of a follower mindset, so they follow others or leaders who seem to have a plan and motion, and are constantly moving forward like the boxers you mentioned, most people tend to follow nowists. So once one has adopted the nowist mindset, what are some ways they can ensure that they're using their power to guide others in the right direction?
1: Well, again, the the research and real-life experience shows you that a leader really is somebody that others want to follow. Mm -hmm. That's the essence of leadership. Sure. So when somebody is... adopts that nowist mindset and adopts it as a kind of lifestyle and approach to life if it's not natural for them. As they take action, even when they feel powerless, they will feel more powerful because, of course, you've achieved more. And as you achieve more and you become stronger in yourself and you develop this kind of power action habit, other people, the research shows again, will tend to view you as more powerful because of course you are. It's not just fake. You are somebody who can roll with those punches, who can keep moving forward. Therefore, you're somebody who's good to travel with or travel behind uh, as a follower, either way. So again, important power action becomes a habit for yourself, but then it also loops. It becomes more and more powerful so other people will be influenced by you, whether formally or just informally.
0: And you write in the book about the different streams of now that are unique, or hashtag now. Is that how you say it when you verbalise it? And- now,
1: um, I, I can't decide, the, but but it's good for people to be able to find the book. But yeah, <laughs> the, the, but the, the just that now moment, yeah.
0: But but so what are the benefits of the uh, of the different streams that now us follow as opposed to Venice?
1: Well, the different streams, this came from the, the idea that most people, many people at the moment are trying to do less when they feel overwhelmed, they do less and they are promised that more will come from it. And sometimes that's true. You know, you focus on just a few important things. My question is whether it's smart to just focus on one thing in life. I think that's difficult, especially if you're likely to get trapped in the sort of perfectionist hole, because you're looking for the one perfect answer instead of again, accepting and embracing that there are many things in the world that you need to do. Uh, I don't know if you will, but I'm a person and I'm an author and I'm a speaker, but I'm also a father and a husband and a son. That's a lot of different things, different responsibilities. And those people who get on best with those, are those who are able to embrace that and say, you know, this is the flux of life, this is the energy. One moment I'm answering an email, the next my son wants me to make a model, and instead of getting annoyed at the interruption there or resenting it or even biting down on it with a, a smile on my face, whichever way the interruption works, whether from an employee, a client or from a family member, it works much better when you remember that life is full of different streams of activity and goals. And in the book, we talk about three. And my 10 year old uh, think understands this. And he pointed out that if he gets it, we can all get it that having about three streams of life work family your interest and seeing how what you're doing at any one point contributes to the others is a very nice way of embracing the reality of life and then enjoying it
0: yeah we all we all wear many different hats and you mentioned as we were uh, as we were talking before the podcast started that you you wear the two different hats of business writer and personal writer. So this book is more of a a, a personal advice book. Uh, What's the difference between those two kind of writing styles and uh, what's the process been like for getting this one published?
1: Well, published, I'm in the fortunate position that a publisher came to me because of some things I'd been writing on this theme, things like sort of not over-focusing and then under-living. So the publishing process was very similar. The, the difference really is that I, I started writing this book because I'd be, come across some just fascinating psychological research. We mentioned it earlier and it came to mean more and more to me and really helped me in the day to day. I'm not a natural nowist. I'm somewhere in between and it started to really help me. And I thought, share it with your children. What's the best way I'll write a book. And then I wanted to share it with a, a wider audience, uh, hence uh, this type of podcast. Uh, thanks to your invitation.
0: Thanks so much for coming back on. So the book, as, uh, as, as Max mentioned, is published by Orem Press. Uh, beautiful treatment. I'm holding it right here in my hands. Uh, Dr. McEwen, we'll, we'll put a close on this where we let everybody know where they can find you, but anywhere they should specifically be looking online uh, to learn about, about Hashtag Now
1: you can go to my website uh, maxmcqueen.com i know will be there the book now is on just every every bookshop but of course amazon you can find it there
0: okay so dr McEwen, to wrap things up let me go with a let me ask you about a spe- specific anecdote or two you write about the right pain for the right gain on some recent blog posts and in the book And you have some recent examples from Olympians that you think illustrate that point well. Can you talk about what those are?
1: Yeah, the the concept of the right pain for the right gain is that pain isn't useful in itself. Sometimes we can become convinced that just really working extra hard or doing something that's really difficult is automatically a good thing. You know that there's virtue in it, uh, and maybe there is perhaps in some spiritual sense, but in a, a practical sense, you want the right pain for the right gain. So an example of this might be Usain Bolt, who early on in his career was pushed into the 200 meters and the 400 meters. You know, He ran further and he was put on this really punishing regime and he was complaining about the pain and he thought it was hurting himself. And then, then they found that he had curvature of the spine after he incurred an injury and he was really mad with the people around him because he said, you know, you weren't listening. I don't mind pain, but I don't want the wrong kind of pain. And so they changed his regime and he changed coach and he kept going. And then he thought even more about it. And he thought, you know, I think I can run this hundred meters and I'd much rather have the gain, the reward of doing well in the 100 meters, and avoid all the pain of practicing for the 400. And that's what he did. He And with the 100 meters, he bet with his coach that he could run a certain time, I think 10 minutes, sort of 10.3 seconds. And he went for it, and he did much, much better than that. And then, of course, becomes the fastest man in the world, and a nine-time, gold medalist at the Olympics. And I think there's a good example of feel the pain. If you're feeling it, make sure it's leading somewhere. If it's not leading somewhere, then maybe choose something else where you get greater joy and only pay the right pain for the right gain.
0: Well, Dr. McEwen, thanks once again. Congratulations on writing the book. Uh, Speaking of no pain, no gain, I used to work in the book publishing world, and I know that there is certainly no book hatched into the world without quite a significant amount of pain. Uh, So thank you for making the effort uh, on, on behalf of me and all the readers out there.
1: You're really welcome. Actually, though, this one wasn't that much pain in the sense that my publisher came to me and said, hey, you're already working in this area. Can you write something? And I thought, I have no time. But then I thought, this is a book about people who can, you know, juggle incredible number of things. So I decided to write it on my iPhone (laughs) because there were always moments in between different meetings. So and planes and, you know, trains and things. So I have my iPhone and I created all the diagrams on an app. And then I created all the text typing into the notes app. I didn't even buy one. And then i just send them to the publisher, and then they'd send back a a sort of beautiful proofed page. And I published it, yeah, 100%. It was in the bath, in the shower, on the (laughs) trains, planes, and automobiles. So that's how it was done.
0: All right, with two thumbs on an iPhone. So if you think you don't have enough time, believe me, you do. Dr. McEwen, thanks once again, and uh, we'll see you next time. Ride your stress like a mule. <laughs> Ride your stress like a mule and other words to live by, courtesy of the one and only Dr. Max McEwen. You can follow Max on Twitter at, at Max McKeown, and you can find out more about now on his website at www.maxmcEwen.com. His last name is spelled M C K E O W N. Thanks once again to Dr. Max McEwen for joining us for this episode of the podcast, and thank you for joining us. Don't forget to tune in next time when we're pleased to welcome Mike Schipolsky back to the podcast to talk about the concept of innovation burst events. We'll be looking at why the conventional wisdom around diverging before you converge may well be wrong, the power of putting yourself on a timer to get things done, and how to reach those eye-watering solutions that will keep your company ahead of the competition for years to come. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next time. The Innovation Engine podcast is recorded, produced, edited, and published by 3Pillar Global, a product lifecycle management and software development company based in Fairfax, Virginia. For more information on the company, or our services, please visit our website at www.3pillarglobal.com. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or SoundCloud. And you can also download our very own iOS app in the iTunes App Store.